You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. You hear this? Wow. That was big gulps, huh? Yep. Nice. It's like a liter of cola. Uh, what was that you just drank? That was some attack protein. Nice. Just got done lifting. Yeah. It's my first like real lift since surgery. How did it feel? Awful. <laughs> so bad. What felt bad about it? Everything. I think there's some factors going on <laughs> more than just being first lift back, but I felt just like a pile of trash. Man, like your raw strength or just like your ability to move I your felt body? weak. I was sluggish. I had no energy. I don't know. I also, now I don't know how long the effects last, but I... I, I'm pretty affected by anesthesia. I don't take like anything in my normal life. Like I've never taken an aspirin or a Tylenol in my entire life. So anyways, anytime I do have something, like my system is really, really like firing when it hits it. And anytime I've had to go under for surgery, I've had lingering effects for a while. And so I don't know if that's this, but I just feel off. Well, I mean, that a- anesthesia basically just shut down your nervous system for like an hour and it's probably trying to turn itself back on or something. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's, there's probably rhyme or reason to that. You just feel like you're not quite connected to your body the way you want to be probably. Yeah. And just super sluggish. Yeah. So, we'll see. Got to fire it out with some curls and blast it out of my system. Woo. I just got done with a Hobie Tempo run on the snowmobile trails. Look at that. Practicing what you preach. And you know what? I have not hurt that much since Tahoe. And I'm not lying to you. That's what happened to me today. In fact, you know, after you race hard and sometimes you get like race gut afterwards, your stomach can be off. I have been in the bathroom like three times since the workout. Like I messed myself up this morning. Did you like crank the runs or something? You know, uh, you know, I'm running in the snow and it does the melt freeze this time of year. So it was like just starting to melt again this morning because the sun was hitting the top layer as it after it froze overnight um but no man i mean it was undulating hilly terrain and i wanted to keep my splits under six minutes even six minute miles even on that terrain and i realized i was a little in over my head after mile one but i was committed man and so i said you know what today's the day where you get gritty and and that's what happened so uh hobie tempo uh can change your life if you hit that right that race gut that's real and and I'm I'm a heavy responder to workouts in terms of a race gut. <laughs> I hit a patch in college my my last year. I don't know what the deal was, but when we started up our fall workout progression for track, uh, we were running this progression where we did 800s, then thousands, then 12s, then 1500s. Mm. And after each session, I had to skip my night class because I couldn't stay off the toilet. And you worked pretty hard in those sessions, I assume. I worked hard, but I wasn't like killing myself. And towards the end, like the last couple of reps, I'd start to feel like, man, I've got to poop and it's going to be bad. And then it just didn't go away for like four or five hours to the point where I thought I was really sick because I was just nauseous. And then I'd like around 10 o'clock that night, I'd start feeling better and I'd wake up fine the next morning. And it was just workout induced like sickness. Strange. Yeah, I I get it only after long hard efforts, and this ended up taking me forty eight total minutes. I did I did six miles of this, and each mile was broken up. And then you put it on undulating snowy terrain, and I looked at my heart rate data, and I was averaging between one seventy two and one seventy seven per mile for that long. You know, I overdid it a little, but that was the point. That's that's what I wanted today. I wanted to race sim duration and effort. So uh, race gut probably is appropriate today. And I'll tell you what. What caught me the most off guard today about the Hobie Tempo was how much burpee long jumps trash your quads with that impact and then getting back to fast running. I bet you the first quarter mile of each new mile after the strength movements was probably 630 pace. And then I worked my way back down to maybe 545s towards the end. But it took me like, took me a minute to shake it off. Yeah, that 
that impact is real. And not that this is the point of our episode, but I'll talk about it for a minute. I was reading some some news sources about the Olympic trials this morning, and a couple different coaches and athletes were talking about why they bombed. And the common thread was aerobically, I felt good, but my body got so beat up from the constant hills. Yeah. And what that just told me, and and a couple of people are like, "Ah, and I'm not sure why I'm trying to look back through my training. And what that just jumps off the page for anyone who's done trail or mountain races in their OCR, that means they weren't ready for the downhills. The eccentric damage that those downhills and hard cement terrain caused their legs. They just couldn't, they couldn't run the same afterwards. Yeah. And it's not a, it's a, it's a different type of fitness. You can be as fit as you want, but if you're not prepared for the impact, it erodes your fitness. Yeah. It's like taking body shots for a boxer. It doesn't make you a worse boxer, but suddenly you can't fight back anymore. And you didn't realize it just building up and building up and building up over time. And suddenly you're just, you're down and you didn't realize it was happening. Yeah. Well, I got a little uh, reminder of that today. So that was good. Uh, we should jump into today's uh, topic or mm-hmm. many topics. I put an Instagram question out earlier this week, and I just wanted to know the listener questions they have. Okay. And we wanted to address them because we're getting, you know, sporadic questions thrown at us um, since we started this podcast. But I just thought it was about time that we answered some of the specifics that you guys wanted to know. Now, I got a really long list of questions and some were, you know, ridiculous into the senses they were just trying to get a laugh. And then I have some that, you know, I don't think I should pick and choose the questions if I think they're a serious question. I'm going to just run down the list, even if some people think, well, that's not worth talking about. Well, somebody thinks it is. Okay. So I think I'm just going to do that. So I'm going to propose the questions and I'm going to give you the first crack at your thoughts at them. I'm coming in blind here. You're blind. Yeah. I want, I want to just test your, uh, yeah, your knowledge. And I don't know. I just told you I'm not firing from this <laughs> anesthesia. <laughs> oh, man. Well, let's see what you come up with. Um, again, I'll probably just disregard the ones that were jokes. First one, nutrition slash training guide for race week. Okay. Now, I know we could go so many angles with that. I want to keep this brief. Yeah. So what would you say to Trey Farmer 3? I would tell him I'm not a dietitian or a nutritionist. And so I just look at this from a practical level, and that is you don't do anything that you haven't tried before on a race week. I think the smartest thing to do is build up your reserves in a few areas and start um, start preparing your body for the demands of the race. But I'm actually not even going to address that because I don't want people to do it based off my advice. I want you to read up on it and test it out in your big workouts first, whatever your plan is for race day. But you can race just fine off everything you normally do before big workout weeks. Yeah, I agree with that. And I would say nutritionally, if this is a big race that you're, um, you're, you have on the weekend, you're probably going to be reducing volume just a little bit or maybe intensity a little bit potentially. So I don't think you need to carb load. I don't think you need to do anything different with your diet. In fact, I think just the slight back off of volume and or intensity is going to help super saturate your glycogen stores by eating a normal diet. So I don't think you need to do anything different. In my opinion, you should eat just like you are um, because the reduction in slight training volume will just help you saturate the way you need to nutritionally. That's my philosophy. That's perfect. And now for long events, Ironman, marathon, ultras, yes, there are some things you should be doing, but I want you to read up on it first before I give blanket advice on a podcast. The one constant I will say is that I think it's smart for everyone to reduce leafy greens 24 to 36 hours before a race. You just don't want to run into any sort of gut issues. So reduce that, ensure you're getting water and electrolytes, but don't do anything you haven't tried in training. That's our advice for everything. Yeah, I think uh, I'm satisfied with that. And hopefully Trey Farmer 3 is satisfied with that. All right. We got, uh, and this is a really good question, by the way. I, I glanced at it and said, ah, this is kind of silly. And then I thought about it and I'm like, this is a good one. Should I still do speed training when preparing for an ultra that's six months away? Or should I just do zone two stuff? Great question. That is a really good question. And I think this is like the age old conundrum in endurance sports is the longer I go, do I really need less speed or do I still need it? I have a specific point of view on this. And my point of view is that regardless of the distance, everyone should always have some sort of speed in their life at all times. 
And so, yeah, my through my lens, I'm going to say, yes, you still should do speed, but you might want to prioritize it differently. If I look at even the best ultra runners on the planet, you are seeing them doing faster than 10K paced work semi-regularly in their training. Now, we shouldn't all train like do exactly what the best people on the planet do, but they're, most of these people aren't doing it on accident. So yes, keep speed in there, but don't make it be the overriding force in your programming. Yeah, I think, first of all, I don't think you should stick to just zone two stuff. That's really low-end aerobic work, in my opinion. And and I think there's a time and place, and I think a lot of your running at that phase can be zone two. You know, your recovery, very, very aerobic efforts. Um, but even six months out, and even if you're training for a five, six-hour race, I think once a week you should be turning your legs over at 10K pace uh, if you can, or faster, just to don't, just not to lose that run efficiency, just not, just to make sure that your body, when the race does get closer, maybe you do want to add a little bit more intensity. You're ready to go into it without such a shock to the system. And you'll get more out of that speed work once it's time to start filtering it into your program more heavily. Yeah. And in zone two means that you're running the same exact stride all the time. You're never involving any area of your body that doesn't need to be because it's such a smooth, efficient, compact little stride. And in an ultra, you're going to exhaust those muscle strands and fibers, and you're going to have to start recruiting more. And the only way to recruit more in training is to do strength work, speed work, and fatigued running. And if you don't do that beforehand, when your body starts to during an ultra, you are out of luck and you are going to cramp, cramp, cramp. You wouldn't know anything about cramping bracken, would you, in an ultra? I have had two cramp sessions in my life that I wouldn't wish upon anyone. Yeah. <laughs> so do your, your speed work. Um, oh man, my phone just went black on me. I got my phone set to a 30 second screen blackout timer. Yeah. Be an issue I'm running into today. All right. I got two questions from Joshua Reed or Joshua Reed. Okay. I like Joshua Reed. Yeah. What's up, Josh? Uh, one's definitely a joke. I'm pretty sure in one serious. So the joke question is running when you have to poop and the benefits of the subsequent gluteal activation. <laughs> Which, yes, we're deep believers in, in anal kegels during workouts. Yeah, what I would suggest is the moment you have to go to the bathroom, hold it, put on your running clothes, and hit the roads, and just see how it turns out for you. Yeah, and you're going to want to do interval work. You're going to want to see how fast you can clench and hold it at bay, and then how long you can go in between clenches without losing control. Uh, let's, um, that was great advice. All right, Josh, we're going to move to your next question. Uh, very simple one, uh, training with fuel versus no fuel when and why? Ooh, this is, this is a really good question. We, we could hope make a whole episode on this probably if we had to, but we're going to make it into two minutes. So, and I think we should in the future. So here's my, here's my 10,000 foot view, 20,000 foot view on this topic. Okay. I like the idea of getting my aerobic work done first thing in the morning having slept, wake up and get running without fueling. There's just so much good research behind becoming a fat adapted athlete and becoming more efficient in your, your burning of fuel. So I like doing that. However, on the flip side of the coin, like we say, you can't do anything race day without practicing it. My big workouts, my long runs, I am practicing the exact morning routine, breakfast, if you do coffee, caffeine, water, whatever beforehand, and then how you fuel during the race, because you have to practice it and find out in training what does and doesn't work. Yeah, I can't argue with any of that. I would say this is just my general, this is what goes on in my head, Kay, is if I'm going 90 minutes or longer, I am bringing something with me. And if I'm going less than 90 minutes, I don't bring anything. Um, the only exception to that would be if it's a very, very hot day and I need some hydration with me. I think there is a benefit to to training maybe without fuel or water because we're not getting a lot of that during races. And I think your body can adapt a little bit to being deprived of those things if you train it that way. Um, so 90 minutes is my rule of thumb. If I'm going 90 minutes or longer, I'm bringing fuel. But here's the thing. If I'm going 90 minutes or longer, I'm going to fuel 30 or 45 minutes into that run ahead of time. I'm not going to wait till the 90 minute mark to then take my first fuel. Then I'm going to get ahead of it. So that pays off dividends after 90 minutes, 90 minutes is my rule of thumb, uh, hundred calories every 30 minutes, um, in the lead up and thereafter is my general, my general rule of thumb. Otherwise I'm not using it. No matter what my workout is, I would rather, um, you know, we got enough 
glycogen stores in our muscles, in our liver uh, to, to fuel even a 90 minute hard effort. I mean, that's what the science shows. So um, that's my opinion. I'm with you on that uh, to the point where I don't even take water during long interval sessions during my recovery reps. Uh, very, very rarely do I ever do that um, on purpose. So I know we're keeping this short, but do look up Killian Jornet's uh, background on doing calorie and water restricted long mountain days. There are some crazy things he did with 10 hour days in the mountain, in the mountains with no water or food to test his limits of what he could get away with and what his thoughts are on that. I'm not saying to do that, but I am saying to read up on it. It's crazy what you can train yourself to do. Okay. I like that. We're going to move next. Um, Patrick says, what kind of cycling ride would be best for a cross training day, hills, endurance, and hit? I think what he's asking is give us, a, give him an example of a, a hill type cycling day. If you're trying to translate a hill run workout into a cycling run workout, do you get what I'm saying? Yep. Endurance or hit. Um, anything you want to jump in on with that? Uh, there, there's a hill workout that uh, when I lived in Lake Geneva, it's a pretty decent cycling and triathlon training area. And there's just a system of neighborhoods in that, that have, they just keep building up to like this crest. There's, there's each road is a hill and the cyclists used to go back there and hammer each hill and cruise down to the next one and hammer the next hill. And they would just go up and down the neighborhoods and they're basically just doing hill repeats. And if you've ever biked on hills, you know it's as hard or harder than running up it. So I love treating it just like a running workout outside. Run hard up, recover down, rinse and repeat until you hit your your prescribed duration. Yeah, so basically pick a hilly route, uh, road or mountain bike, uh, attack the uphills, keep a nice steady effort on the downs or flats and repeat. Otherwise, if you don't have rolling terrain, I would suggest really increasing the gear on your bike and getting out of the saddle and making pushes for whatever it is, 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes, getting out of the saddle and saddle and really driving with a heavy gear uh, to simulate hills. As far as endurance goes, uh, which was the second part of your question, nice steady ride. Do If you were going to run for an hour, bike for, you know, you can get away with a little more biking, but let's just keep it simple. You bike for an hour. It's fine. Um, hit training uh, was the other question. You know, if you want to be a real nut job, you can hop on and off your bike and go do some crap. I've done it before. It's hard with clips. Um, you can simulate your run workouts basically on the bike, almost like verbatim. So yep. that would be my advice. Whatever you had scheduled that day, just do it on the bike. I do that. I do it um, anytime I need non-impact, but still want to get my quality. And if you're looking for examples for it or advice, go check out uh, Kevin Gelati's Instagram page. That man lives on and off the bike with HIT training. So he yeah. might be the guy that you need to research or to reach out to. He, he loves chatting. Yes, he does. Shout out to Kevin Gelati for being a, a gung-ho Spartan. All right. Uh, Brian Machino, Michno says, compromise running okay two to three times per week if running intensity varies? Yes and no. This, this isn't like a black or white issue. Um, I would say that if you are like an Olympic level or not Olympic level, if you're a high level runner coming over to the sport, you should probably be compromised running two to three times a week because you have all your skills in place already. Now you just need to translate them to the obstacle course. However, for the average person, two to three a week is a lot. A um, lot. I only do that when I'm in a specific phase where I'm trying to sharpen my ability to compromise run. We talked about this actually on last week's episode. So go back and listen to it. We talk all about that. But Kirk and I both average one per week to 14 days. And we think the sweet spot's right around that seven to 10 day range. Yep. I think once a week when you're really, you know, once a week, I think you should be doing OCR, compromised running. And then another time a week, you should be doing just run specific higher end work, whether it's tempo threshold interval work, um, and once in a while, I think another way to add it in is in your long run, um, even at like a lower moderate intensity, breaking it up every half mile with some sort of strength or plyo move, but not at like a, I hate my life work, work rate. Mm -hmm. I, I'm going to, I mean, three times a week is too much. I think even three times a week is too much if for anybody, I just think it's, you're, you're just, it's overdoing it twice a week at most. I think once every week or once every 10 days is actually going to get the job done. There are times though, that I add in another day per week at aerobic effort where I'll take a 70 minute easy run and turn it into 400 meter carry one mile easy run, just back and forth, back and forth. Heart rate never goes. It's just a skill and a rep work day 
time on feet. I think you can safely add stuff like that in, but again, it, it's like a circuit. It's so easy to push too hard. And so I think keeping them specific, like Kirk said, to the day where you have a super specific intent is the safest way to progress with that. Yep, I agree. All right, next. This is from uh, an, uh, an in-gym client of mine who moved away from me to Washington, which broke my heart. This is Seth. Seth asked two questions. Um, how often do you mix in leg days during a training cycle for OCR or marathon training? And that's actually a really good question because everybody's trying to move the puzzle pieces of their week. Well, if I trash my legs, then it's going to affect my next few days of running and the high-end output and vice versa. So I actually love that question because I even rattle that one around in my head still. And I think a lot of runners do. How do you fit leg days into your training cycle of your, let's call it a week? Where do you put them? How do you do it? We're hitting a bunch of these classic questions that are really hard for people and our, ourselves included. And, and my broad strokes answer is that it depends on what you're already doing. If you're a five day a week lifter, you can get away with doing more because you are used to the stress of this. This all comes down to how much does it stress you and what can you recover from? But I think the safe answer is that you can lift your legs after on the same day after your quality runs for the week. I think that's the easiest place to start. So if you've got intervals Tuesday and let's say a tempo Thursday and a long run Saturday, if you're one of those classic three a week person, after the intervals and the tempo, you can lift right after that. That's what we did in college. That's what I come back to anytime I need to keep it in. I do not lift legs after long runs though. Yeah. Okay. So we're pretty much on the same page there. Uh, I think there's two pla two places to put in like productive leg work. And that is either the same day as your quality effort in the afternoon or that morning right away afterwards, that next morning. And then I might shake it out with a cardio effort, either a run or a bike, but the day after um, a quality effort, only because I'm assuming you're not going to do another quality effort for a few days. So it gives your legs a few times, a few days to recover. Otherwise, uh, what I do actually, and I still do, is I am almost always doing my leg work the day before my long run because I'm fine running on fatigued legs for a long run if I don't have a specific goal other than time on feet. So, I mean, my I'm always hitting uh, leg work on Fridays and I do my long run Saturdays. And you know what? Sometimes it's good to run a little fatigued on those long runs. Um, so those are the two places I would put them into your schedule. I love it. Um, I have played around with doing it the day before quality days. Uh, I think it's sports specific for us to run hard on tired legs, but you have to be really careful with that. So like the coach and me can't let this topic go by without giving like my, my heads up for all of this. And that is you have to get in shape to handle the heavy lifting before you get in shape to handle both of them. And that seems self-evident, but you can't just start tacking on heavy lifting right after your interval work and expect nothing to go wrong. And when you do start tacking it on, you have to pay extra attention to your warm-up before the lifts, and you have to build into your lifts slowly. You can't do a, a you know a half-hearted warm-up set and jump right into a heavy deadlift after a tempo. It, your hamstrings will not respond without yeah. injury. So pay attention to the little things and build into the lifts. You might have to take the the stance that an 80 or 90% of a full lift is going to be more beneficial after a quality run than doing a full, full bore lift. There's, um, there's going to be some people who are going to disagree with what I'm about to say, but I don't care. So I think in an ideal world, let's say you have a week or two planned recovery, okay, where you might not even be running at all. Some would say you should just take that whole two weeks off and eat donuts and bacon and put your feet up and relax. I think if you've been thinking about starting leg work or a strength program during that one or two weeks when you're not running in like an in-between season phase is the perfect time to start that work because it's not going to hinder your running. It's going to give your body a couple weeks to adapt, and then you can start filtering it into your run training program. So the next time you have a scheduled week or two off, um, yeah, don't run. Just do like slow lifting. That's not going to be aerobic at all. Um, and then set yourself up so it's not so miserable once you jump back into your running and try to combine it all together. That's just what I think. I fully agree with that. I think it's the perfect use of an off season or of a down period. And it avoids running into the problem, which most runners, myself included, I've struggled with in the past run into. It's like, all right, I know I need to start lifting, but I've got a brace in three weeks. 
And if I have a week and a half of soreness and then I have to start tapering, I only get a half week. That's not worth it. So I'll wait until after that race. And then after that race, you're like, well, I'm really only two weeks away from my next race. And you just, it's this never ending cycle of, I don't know when to start. And so obviously the easiest way is just what you said, downtime. Yep. Uh, his next question. And I just want to, I literally want to spend 30 seconds. on Okay. okay. Uh, what are your go-to pre and post hard training run food? I, I eat pizza before every single race. I, I would say 95% of my races I eat pizza before. After The night before, not in the morning. Night before. Although in the morning, if I'm traveling for a race, if I don't have access to exactly what I want to eat in the morning, I'll just eat the leftover pizza, a slice or two of the leftover pizza beforehand because I've done it for years before workouts. I know my stomach has no issues with it. However, peanut butter and jelly bagel or oatmeal is my preferred go-to morning breakfast with a, with like a smoothie or some juice. All right. So I, uh, I like density the night before a race. Some people eat really light and clean the night before a race. I like to eat heavy and dirty. So I'm talking just density. I just want to like fill my bucket, my glycogen bucket with everything it needs. And I don't have stomach issues usually, um, no matter what I eat the night before. So I'm a pizza or like burger and fries guy, which I don't even eat much during the week, but every time I tend to like overdo the dense foods, uh, I got this like surplus of like stored energy that next morning. And I'm not saying that's gonna work for everybody now. So, you know, it's so preference Seth, like it really is. And then afterwards, if I run really hard, I have no appetite. So I'm taking some sort of powdered recovery drink. Uh, my Endure Elite Recover Elite is fantastic. Uh, otherwise, a uh, banana or something just quick to get those blood sugars back up and then wait till my stomach's ready for real food. That's it. Yep. I am powdered stuff for the first hour or two afterwards, and then my body craves salt. So I am getting after burgers or pizza or whatever is around that is salty. Great. We're moving on. Grayson Kilgore. Okay. Grayson. We're, this isn't a serious one, but can you get the mythical Ryan Atkins on to talk about how he trains compromised running? My answer to you is uh, probably, probably, probably can do that at some point. What do you think, Bracken? I think we give it a shot. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take, Kirk. You know, I want to get Lindsay Webster on actually as our next female guest because I got some burning questions I want to ask her and maybe we can just snipe Ryan Atkins that way too. Uh, next, not serious, Ian Hosick. What do you do when you have to take an emergency poop on the trail? And I actually kind of want to answer this one, but why don't you go ahead first? Kind of like your, if you're heading 90 minutes or longer, you take nutrition. If I'm heading 90 minutes or longer, I am taking toilet paper. As a safety measure. Because I have finished far too many runs with less than the number of socks or gloves or head coverings that I started with or undershirts. I'm tired of that. That's so funny. Uh, yeah, I've, uh, I've lost quite a few shirts back in the day. Uh, I always put a little Ziploc baggie with TP if it's, if it's longer than 90 minutes. Is this, and you know what? I'm going to almost say 20 times out of 20, I don't use it. Uh, maybe, I don't even know the last time I had to. But I think because it's there and I know it's there, my body's like, oh, you're good, bro. Like, we're not going to need you. And yeah. We're keeping this episode short, so I'm not sharing the story, Kirk. But in a future episode, we need to talk about my friend Jeff and his Under Armour. Okay? All, right, we'll, all right. We'll talk about <laughs> And we can also talk about the time where I had to go so bad middle of the run before I kept TP with me. And I saw a park up ahead with a bathroom and I was just pinching the penny the last 50 yards, like trying to make it. And I pulled on that door handle and it was locked, but my body thought I was going to be going anyways. So I just dropped trowel right in front of that door handle and left it right there. <laughs> and that story that told to the next people who came up ahead to know. We could do a full episode of worst running poop stories. Oh man. All right. Thanks for that question, Ian. All right. Next uh, from Kelly Schweikart. Uh, she's been a big fan of the show and she said that, you know, on social media, we appreciate that Callie, uh, best way or ways to bulletproof yourself for Spartan obstacle. Again, that could be a whole episode, but let's, uh, give us our cliff notes version. Well, it really depends on what the obstacle is, but I'm a firm believer of just hitting it over and over during interval work. I, my short, short story. When I first started OCR, I kept trying to beat Hobie Call and I couldn't. And every time I raced him, I'd get further into the race. And then we'd get to a new set of obstacles that he would dust me on and he'd be gone. He was a better runner than me and he was better at that. Each one of those obstacles I'd set up at the high school I was teaching at at the time. And I would do interval work and I would just put that obstacle in the middle of every one of my intervals. It started with crawls. It went to walls. It went to 
hoist. No matter what it is, you just do it over and over and over during your high intensity work. Man, you, uh, I'm going to echo what you just said. So the name of the game when you're, when you're tackling Spartan obstacles in a race is you're never hitting these obstacles with a low heart rate. Never. I mean, so a lot of people do their grip work and their obstacle work on low heart rate efforts, or they'll do it individually, which serves a purpose. And I think you still should do that. However, then they get to like the rig and it feels 10 times harder than it normally did in practice because their heart rates through the roof and everything is so fatigued uh, that it just, they don't feel like they're themselves on the monkey bars or the rig or, and it's because you're not accustomed to doing that work while your heart rate's at 180 beats per minute. So you got to simulate that in some of your workouts that goes back to compromise running workouts, adding grip work in anything like that. Um, if you're not simulating obstacles with a high heart rate, you're doing your, you're racing a huge injustice. Yep. Simplest way for hanging obstacles, finish each interval. And before you start your 60 or 90 seconds rest, complete 20 grip switches on a pull-up bar or a tree branch or a goal post, wherever you're doing it. Something simple that fires your arms when you're tired. Couldn't agree more. All right. Next question is from Fire Phoenix Fitness. Uh, we kind of touched on this a little bit. I think we don't need to spend a ton of time on it, but how do you feel during a race? Um, also water to electrolyte intake, pre-race nutrition, that whole thing. Um, as far as feeling during, I mean, I, I thought you said, how do you feel during a race? Oh, miserable. Like, yeah, miserable. Awful. My, like my body is exploding, uh, from the inside. So feeling during a race and I found, you know, I used to fuel every 45 minutes. Um, and I realized in hindsight, that's a mistake. Uh, if you have a really intense effort and a lot of these mountain races are, two, three, four hours, five for some people, uh, every half an hour, you're not going to want it a half an hour into your race. And in fact, let's say you hit a point on the course where you're at 22 minutes into the race, but it's like a steep power hiking section and it's a convenient time to take your nutrition, even though it's eight minutes early, uh, take your nutrition. It's not an exact science, but at minimum, I think every 30 minutes and I'm an opportunist on the course, meaning if it makes sense and I feel like now I'm going to lose the least amount of time by taking my nutrition, I do it as long as it's, you know, somewhat within reason with my goals I'm shooting for time-wise. So 100 calories every half hour. You can even go 150 calories every half hour, really. Um, I don't care what you take, whatever works well for you. Um, that's how I approach it. I have nothing to argue with that on that. So I'm just going to switch to the other side of the coin where other people might be, where I am currently. And I don't do fueling like that anymore. I put my fuel into water. Even if I'm using gels, I shake six or seven gels into bottles of water. And then I sip every five to 10 minutes so that I'm taking small doses the entire time. It works better for me. Um, but same theory, just split up into smaller chunks. Yep. And you'll see a couple guys that do it. Uh, Ryan Woods is a guy who does that. Uh, Johnny Luna Lima is a guy who does that. Um, you will see like an Atkins take his goose still like the traditional methods. Uh, but I know Ryan Woods and, and Luna Lima definitely take it, their nutrition. And it might be a pretty thick conglomerate of like taste in that water bottle you have. And you can grab regular water at a stop real quick, but that, you know, you might have four or five, 600 calories in your little water bottle, just a slushy, goopy, watery, but you can get it in easy. And, and I agree with that. Uh, side note on Atkins, the first time I ever raced him in a, in a race was down in Florida and I watched him take gels out of his pants and just suck it down and keep racing just in the middle of the trail. This man's just taking gels with no water, no chaser, just sucking it right down like a man. That's what I do. Oh, I, and then I, 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 I can't, <laughs> I, I just catch my water the next time I can. Yeah. So I guess I'm a man too, Bracken. Yes, you are. Matt Fleetwood says what is the best injury free way to build volume with running both duration and vert uh if i had a if i had a formula or a direct answer for this i'd be a millionaire brother uh because there's not one right answer but bracken why don't you try yeah there's not you you just have to keep an amount that you can currently handle and then go up a little bit and handle that for long enough that you know it's real that you're not just having a a couple good weeks and then go up a little bit more. Personally, what I like to do is I like to double. I'm a responder to doubles. And so I start by adding 20 minutes in the PM a couple times per week. And that can even start as a bike and then it morphs into a run and then it gets a little longer. So I add doubles and that works safely for me. But 
You just have to do it progressively, intelligently, and sustainably. Yep. And you should plan in down week. So uh, a two or a three week build where you slowly progress your volume over one, two, three weeks. And then on your third or fourth week, you take a significant decrease in your volume to let your body recover. And then you build a little more the next two or three weeks and then take a down week rebuild. So that's a, but you, you gotta, you can't just hope to see this like exponential curve in your overall volume. You need to plan in down weeks to make sure you prevent injury, your body recovers, and then you can try to rebuild again before you take your next recovery week. It's a very long cycle of build, deload, build, deload, but you have to deload at minimum every four weeks, ideally even every three weeks, which would mean two high weeks, one low week, or three high weeks, one low week. And the final piece of that is as your volume rises, so do your preventative measures, your mobility work, your ice baths, if you do that, your um, your nutrition, your massage, if you're a foam roller, if you go to cryo, if you go to chiropractors, whatever you do, you have to increase that as your work increases. Yeah. One thing, other thing I want to add is let's say you feel like you have an ultra coming up or a beast and or a marathon even. And you're like, I just don't think my body can handle three, two or three hours of run training right now, even though that's what I need to be doing for my race. And you feel kind of desperate and you're panicked and you don't want to risk injury. Um, a great way to do that for me and the way I've done this in the past is I may create like some sort of brick workout where I will run for a mile and then I'll hop on the spin bike for 10 minutes and then I'll run for a mile, hop on the spin bike for 10 minutes and I'll just rinse and repeat for two to three hours. And maybe at the end of that, I've only run an hour, hour and a half, but I've had my heart rate up for three hours. And that's a really good way around if you're if you're reticent to build volume is to just cycle running in in like a, a little bit of a circuit uh, that that almost gives you, gosh, almost the same benefit without the pounding. So I did that in a expanded version prepping for my most successful ultra I've had. I would do a 90 minute to two hour run workout, hop off and hit this 20 mile hilly loop on my bike on one cycle of training on the next, I would do the 20 mile loop first and then do like a 60 to 90 minute run. And so I wasn't doing three hours of run, but I was getting so much fatigue in there that it played out really well on race day. Yep. Um, all right, let's go to the next one. This is from Rob Thorsten. He, Rob. Uh, Rob Thorson. Sorry. He's uh, yeah, a buddy of mine. He's uh, he's a good dude. We see him at races. We chat once in a while. Uh, again, I only want to spend a couple minutes on this because this could be a whole episode question, um, which means you're asking good questions, really, because they're questions we could dive into further. But can you break down speed work, type, frequency, and the importance of it all? Okay. <laughs> which is like, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, great questions, like really. But um, here's the deal. With speed work, as we kind of talked about with the previous question, uh, speed work should be in some facet involved in any part of your training cycle, uh, whether you're just starting back up or you have a race that's way far away. Like you should be doing speed work every week. I think if you uh, if you have very far off races and you're not even you know you're just trying to keep yourself moving, I'd say speed work once a week. And uh, maybe when you get into that uh, you know last few months approaching something then you're doing speed work twice a week, in my opinion, or threshold work or something like that. Um, <clears throat> uh, so, but, but that's such a, it's such a tough question to do it justice in this quick format, but I'll let you expand on things. You know, I don't even think I'm going to. I think that we'd be doing people a disservice by giving an incomplete answer. So let's stick with that. You got to have it at some point. There are so many different styles that Rob, I'm sorry, we're not going to answer it. We're going to do a whole entire episode on just this sometime in the near future. Your question was so good, Rob, that we're going to have to just push it off for now. In the meantime, if you don't know where to start, add strides to the end of your workouts and runs. Yeah. Um, all right. From J Money OCR. How do you determine the right amount of weekly volume? Well, there's two ways to do this. You can yep. approach from one end of the spectrum. Again, in my eye, there, I'm sure there's many ways. I look at it from two different ends of the spectrum. The first is that you can start with the volume you know you can safely handle right now, and then you start building until you find your sweet spot. The other way is to look at the demands of your next race and say, okay, if it's a marathon, by the time I get to June 1st, I need to be able to handle this. And then you work backwards from there to where you are right now. Those are the two ways to start, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, and there's going to be a question, I think, coming up later. But 
I think measuring, especially in our sport, measuring weekly volume based on time instead of mileage um, is probably smart, especially if you're running a lot of vert. If you're doing a lot of compromised running, which can also extend the duration of your workouts without necessarily the mileage going up. Um, so like, for example, an, an app that a lot of us use is called Strava, and you can set weekly goals of mileage or time. Uh, I think I would look at the time on feet before I look at your overall weekly mileage. And uh, it's just a side note that I think is important to add to that. I'm glad you said that. It's very important. The farther you get away from track or flat road racing, the more time truly matters. Yeah. Um, but, you know, as a general rule of thumb, you want to, unless you're running really far distances, like ultras or anything, I'd say anything up to a beast distance, you want to make sure your long run is at least as long as you anticipate maybe your race uh, time to be, just so you're, you understand how long or how it's going to feel to be on your feet that long. Um, so if you're looking at long runs, building yourself up to uh, approximately the time on feet you're going to be doing in your race. Now, I think those those go out the window when you talk about ultras or even marathons for some people, depending how long it's going to take them. Uh, but that's just my opinion. Yeah. Uh, all right, next. Uh, and I'm not sure how to answer this one, so I want to see what you come <laughs> up with. Good. Okay. And so this is from the World Wander something. I can't read the rest of the name. As a weight loss health coach, I tell my clients any type of cardio is great. Yeah, can't argue with that. But in your opinion, is there a best type of cardio for weight loss? Um, and then they say without putting them into caloric deficit, which is a bit of an oxymoron or a confusing, it's confusing because weight or fat loss, unless you're doing an extreme diet, like a ketogenic diet, uh, you're going to have to induce some sort of caloric deficit in order to lose fat. So I want to just ignore that last part of the question to just keep it simple. Um, I agree. What is your best type of cardio for weight loss? <laughs> what type of bear is best? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I, I don't think there is a best. The be If you're a runner looking to lose weight, it's running. If you're a swimmer looking to lose weight, it's swimming. Sports specificity always wins. For general weight loss, it's I, I really think it's whichever one excites you the most. Whichever one gets you to the gym or your basement or outside every single day ready to do it, that's the best. I know people who have had fantastic weight loss stories walking. They just love walking and they'll do two to three hour long walks several times per week and 40 minute walks on the other days. Is that better than running? Well, not for a runner, but it got their weight loss going. Uh, yeah, whatever keeps you going and excites you. I'm going to add my opinion on this. And okay. again, I'm, gonna, I'm going to assume there's going to be some strong disagreements from a handful of people listening. Uh, we can battle it out in Instagram chat if you'd like. So I full-heartedly believe that high-impact aerobic work is the best way to lose fat and burn more calories. Anytime we are making contact with the ground and putting very, very big force and shock into our bodies, uh, we are asking more demand, thus a higher heart rate, thus a higher rate of work, thus a longer recovery period afterwards, which means a longer elevated heart rate, means a longer post-workout caloric burn. And in my opinion, uh, weight-bearing exercise, hands down, wins the overall caloric burn award, uh, which starts point me right at running, plyometrics, okay. anything like that. But I think high impact, and running is high impact, uh, leads the charge, in my opinion. Well, if we're doing this, we're doing this. And I'm going to say you're right, but I'm going to play devil's advocate then. I'm going to say the best overall is incline hiking or running. I think that cranking the incline up allows you to get more intense burn without the pounding and impact. And so it's more sustainable long-term. Even if I don't, even if I believe, yes, that running in more impact is better, I think it does bring out the opportunity for injury. And so incline hiking and running is better. Suck it, Kirk. You're annoying me with that answer. However, uh, I'm going to prove to the public that you're an idiot. And you want to know why? Yeah. Because of the question you asked on my Instagram story, which I'm going to tell them. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't I, me. I was hacked. <laughs> or it says it says Bracken Cracker, I think is how you pronounce it. Or Bracken Cracker. Anyways. I had a high school teacher, teacher call me Barkin Kramer. Barkin Kramer comes yeah. in. I'm going to censor some of the words in this question. <laughs> I was hacked. Go ahead and say the full thing. All right. To Bra Bracken Cracker. Uh, 
My genitalia bounces like crazy in shorts, but it's also too visible in spandex. What do I do? <laughs> what would you tell Rock and Crack? Wow, well that 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 that's an intelligent question, whoever wrote that. <laughs> the age old uh, question, yeah. So so to to whoever that well endowed individual is, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I agree that running shorts, oftentimes the worst part of them is the liner and it breaks down over time. And so I am a proponent of finding yourself some underwear. Uh, some running briefs, some running or athletic briefs that are designed to not retain sweat and keep you in place. And that way you can wear your spandex without uh, without looking like a, a freeze-dried kielbasa. And you can also wear your running shorts without, I don't know, looking like there's a squirrel fighting in the front of your pants. This Bratch and Crooker guy had a, asked a good question. He did. Uh, uh, and I will just say that, uh, I changed over to these, uh, running specific underwear and the chafing situation is way better. They're there. You just get yourself some underwear. They work. Okay. Uh, all right. All right. Brain cracker. We're done. All right. Uh, thoughts on training with a weight vest. This comes in from Jay Nutini. I really like it for functional strength work and I really like it for uphill work. The downside of uphill work is you have to come downhill. And so it's best to use it on high intensity efforts when you're going to walk or slow jog downhill. But I use it a lot when I am doing uphill treadmill work. I think it accelerates fitness gain and it accelerates injury risk. So you have to do it carefully. Yeah, I think uh, the problem is, you know, even the lightest weight vests are 10 pounds. First of all, get yourself a high quality weight vest that doesn't bounce, doesn't chafe. Uh, those are very important. Spend the money on your weight vest and you'll be happy in hindsight. Don't buy a cheap $30 one, uh, buy the one that's like 200 bucks. I hate to say it, but it, you will never get it's like the hyper vest, for example, hugs your body hyper wear. You will not regret. Um, I think it's very dangerous to run flat or downhill with a weighted vest. The way it changes your mechanics, the way it increases your force against the ground and then back into your body. Uh, the one place I freaking love it is uphill work. I love it for uphill work. I love it for uphill treadmill work, running or incline hiking, uh, because you're not risking all that high impact because of the grade. So the only place I put it into my uh, run workouts would be incline work and mostly just on my incline treadmill, to be honest with you, because the safest and biggest return on investment with the least risk. Mm -hmm. and, and people often ask me, why don't you just go faster uphill? And my answer to that is that it doesn't change the fact that you're still doing the same effort and you're working a different system where like if, if you're running faster, now you just get more and more anaerobic. But if you're running with a uh, weighted vest, you just get more tired early and it accurately simulates the second half of a race rather than I get really anaerobic, but I can't get an hour of anaerobic work in or highly anaerobic work, but I can get an hour of fatigued work with a weight vest on. Yep. And I think it helps develop a little bit of extra power as well. Uh, Adam, uh, L beach says, does mountain running translate to flat ground running? I love this question. Yeah, it does. And it translates best if paired with a little bit of flat speed work. Yeah. Uh, the age old, I guess the adage is, uh, incline running translate to flat running and flat running does not very well translate to incline running. Um, <coughs> so more incline work you can do or find a way to do will definitely help your flat running um, without question. So yes, mountain running translates to flat running very, very well. That's it. So full stop. Somebody wants to know what I'm currently reading. I don't really, I'm not reading anything right now. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, Josh in HD, Josh Chase, Ooh, Josh from Chase. Obstacle Racing Media. Um, and I like his question too. He says, without hiring a coach, What's the best resources for someone who just wants to improve? Okay. The internet. Sneaky, sneaky. Uh, so when I first started this and I still do this, honestly, I followed a bunch of my favorite athletes on Strava and I screenshot their workouts and I started getting my own ideas that way. Uh, how to, you know, what intervals did I like? Oh, that caught my eye. I'll be, I'd like to do that someday. And I started to just put together a cache of, high level athletes that have proven themselves on the race course. And I started jacking their workouts without them knowing it. Uh, and I think that's okay to do. I put my detailed workout stuff on my Strava. Um, I think that's not a bad place to start. Yeah. Yeah. As long as you 
balance it out into your week scale to your ability, that's fantastic. And and really, you we're in a day and age where you can Google any question you ever have, and you're going to get 90% crap and 10% gold. And that 10% gold is going to steer you exactly where you need to go. And that's what I do continuously. I'm always, always reading online other sources to try to figure out different ways around a training problem. If I were to just give you like this, like Band-Aid answer that would work for most people, I would say read 80-20 Running by Matt Fitzgerald and steal high-level athletes' workouts or versions of them off of Strava. Follow the concept 80-20 Running gives you and then pick your high-quality workouts from whatever athlete is making those accessible to you. That's what I would say. And choose athletes with similar skill sets. Don't choose some Olympic runner who's translating to OCR. Choose someone that has your skill set but magnified. Yep. Follow 8020 Running's general philosophy and principle and find workouts from uh, yeah athletes well, you admire. Okay. I like that. Yeah. Uh, that's a hack job training plan for you. Okay. Uh, one of my clients and athletes, uh, Chloe Sasagawa, um, <clears throat> I think she's asking on behalf of her husband, but what's a realistic expectation of speed improvement over time? For example, I run eight minute miles and I want to run six minute miles. Okay. I mean, a lot of people out there are thinking this, like I'm an eight, will I ever get as good as some of these top end guys? What is your answer to, to that question? Oh, I have the depressing answer and I have the encouraging answer. Let's start with the depressing answer. Talent doesn't hide that you get these kids that come over from soccer and take top 10 in state and cross country and track their first year. You know, they're kids that show up to PE class and run a 450 mile because they're freaks. That talent doesn't hide. If you're doing any amount of work, you know if you are the best or not. And so- I mean, perspective there is like, my dad was a state champion cross country runner in high school, okay? And he was fourth or third in the two mile in track, right? Your family are all athletes that have some sort of gift. Like we got dealt a lucky card. Mm -hmm. So that's just two examples of for us. And at the same time, I know that I, my ceiling is so much lower running wise than a lot of other people because I worked for 10, 20 years and I'm not running times that some kids in high school roll out of bed and run without ever having trained. So the depressing answer is that, you know, early on what roughly what your ceiling is, but the encouraging answer is there is a whole litany of athletes who just ran at the Olympic trials despite not having been successful earlier in life. There was this one athlete who left high school as like an 1830 5K runner, and he just ran at the Olympic trials, which is 219 is the qualifier, which means he ran a marathon at 520 pace per mile or faster. So he's running 26 miles faster than he ran the pace for 5K in high school. So the real answer is we have no way of telling you. Your training history determines part of that, but all you can do is, like Kirk said, get your, your training balanced with 80-20, get some good high-quality workouts, and do it for six to nine weeks. And retest your mile, retest your 5K, and that'll give you an idea of, did I improve two seconds or did I improve 20 seconds? If you're not improving much, you're close to your ceiling, or you're doing something really wrong. If you're improving a ton, you've got a lot of time to drop. Yeah, if you feel like you're not improving like you want, uh, two two easy answers for me are one: <clears throat> how consistent have you been over time? And I don't mean days or weeks. I mean I don't even mean months. I mean years to develop like the the blood capillary systems to increase mitochondria to complete overall like plasma and red blood cell volume. Like those adaptations can take forever, and I mean years and years and years. So how long have you been training, and how long have you been consistently training? And then the other thing is if you're just randomly going through your training, you absolutely need to hire a coach to help you. You're going to give yourself the best fighting chance of improving. Moving on. Uh, Johnny Luna Lima. I don't know if you've heard of him. Um, he just says, and I wasn't, I didn't think he's joking. I think this is actually a good question to answer. He says, is there such thing as too easy of running? I think it's a ser- serious question that could be answered. My answer is no, as long as it's balanced out with very hard running. And I think that's as simple as we need to get. There are, we, Kirk and I have talked about this. There are people who believe that junk mileage is a thing. Kirk and I are not those people. If you are doing hard workouts, there's no such thing as too easy on your recovery days. 100% agree. Um, that's is all we need to say about it. You can run as easy as you'd like on your recovery days within, you know, within some sort of reason, as long as you're really going ham on your hard days. Uh, next question. I'm going to tell you right now, we're going to skip this for a very specific reason. 
This is from Slip Knox OCR. How would you taper before a beast? Sir, we are going to cover a tapering episode uh, coming up. So you're just going to have to hold on your pants for a second because we're going to get that one coming to you shortly. Okay. If your race is this week, though, <laughs> <laughs> then the message me. One, one, one sentence answer either rest up or really rest up. Those are your two options. Perfect. We'll give you more on that later. Okay. How much mileage? This is from the Lean Bean. How much mileage is necessary to be competitive or elite in OCR or road racing? Man, that answer is different depending on if you're talking road racing or OCR. If you're talking road racing, you have to run real mileage. And by real, I mean, I don't think you're going to find a professional elite road runner doing less than 80 a week. You can get close to your potential 90% of the way there off 50 or 60. But in OCR, you have people running anywhere from 20 to 120. And it's about volume and time on feet, like we said, not mileage. I would say at minimum, the most minimalist top level athlete is putting in six hours of either running or cardio at minimum per week. If you can't run that much, again, we're looking at time. I would say most of us, like myself, I'm at least hitting eight. Uh, and when I start really developing, I'm looking to shoot above 10 hours of either run time on feet or run plus uh, cross training time on feet. Um, we're going to move on. Uh, another question about why talk about miles per week when, when you know, time on feet or hours could be more beneficial. We already covered that. That's from AGO CR. Uh, and let's see if I like anything else here. When should you go by feel instead of heart rate? Oh, that's a whole episode. So broad strokes, you go by feel on days that you don't have a specified heart rate range to do. If you're doing a threshold off heart rate, you have to stick to it. If you're doing something based off pace or for time as a time trial or anything like that, then you don't. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I have one last question that I think I want to cover. And then uh, I think we got most everything in. So this is from uh, Whitley Jeremy. And I like this question too. It says, with a weekly LSD run, um, and that's not like going to get drugs, that's long, slow distance run. Got that, Benny? With a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> with, a, with a weekly LSD run that is three hours or more in duration, are the additional easy miles throughout the week needed? That's a good one. That's a really good question. That's I think that's question. another... We might just have to have a volume episode. Um, my take is that, yes, if you do it once per week and do nothing else but quality throughout the week, you, your recovery will actually be worse and you still are missing out on run economy and resistance to impact. The more often you run, like anything else in life, the more often you get reps at it and the better you get at it and you get more refined and efficient. However, I'm going to th answer a question that wasn't asked. And I'm going to say, I don't think you need three hours every week. I would say every other week. Boom. Okay. All right. Boom. Uh, I was going to add to that. Uh, I was just going to piggyback on what you had said. Um, this is for sure. It's anecdotal for sure for me and most any other top level athletes. But I will recover better if I run some easy miles between hard efforts, hands down. Let's say I did a hard effort on Tuesday didn't run on Wednesday. And then I had another hard effort on Thursday. I rarely do that setup, but let's just say I will feel much better on my Thursday hard effort. If I did some shakeout easy miles on Wednesday between the two hard efforts without question and whatever the science is behind it, I'm sure I could come up with something, but it, it just helps flush the body, the legs out, re-loosens things up. You can get a little nice stretch in afterwards, kind of get your body primed for the next one. So I think easy miles have a really big place in recovering from hard efforts. Mm -hmm. Not meaning you, you don't need to spend a ton of time on feet during those easy miles. Even if you get out for 20 minutes, um, it makes a big difference. It, it, you wouldn't think running more helps you recover better, but it does. It does. And, and I'm going to use this to answer several other questions we talked about. And this is, you talked about, you prefaced some things with saying, this might piss people off. This might anger people or they might disagree, but this is my overall take on volume and easy days and everything. If you want to be your best, you need to do as much as you possibly can right up into the point where you get hurt, right? You stay below that. Everyone should run or cycle or row as much as they can safely handle because you get better at things every time you do it. And if 10 is good and 12 doesn't get you injured, 12 is better. And if 14 gets you injured, 14 is bad, but 13 is better than 12, which is better than 11. And that's super simplified, but that's truly what I believe. You should do as much of everything as possible safely. 
Yeah. And that's going to take a little bit of experimenting and trial and error along the way. Um, but I agree with that. I agree with that a lot within reason, of course, like if you think your body can handle 24 hour runs twice a week, like I might, I might just not do that because that would be, um, all right. I don't, uh, there may be a few that we missed. If, uh, if you feel like you got shorted on this Q and a, uh, you know, send me a middle finger emoji on Instagram and I'll get the hint and we'll try to cover that, uh, next time around. But Bracken, sir, I got to go, uh, you know, take care of this old body here and hit physical therapy. You get after it. Listeners, thank you for the questions. I enjoyed that. I appreciated it. We're going to do this again. Yeah, that sounds good. Hey, and we really do appreciate you taking the time to shoot over questions. Uh, It shows you guys listen. It shows you guys care. That just warms my damn heart. Thank you. Have a good one, ladies and gents. Bye. Thank you.